Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, and welcome to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation's Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Travis Fisher. Now, Travis, you're relatively new to Heritage. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I've been here for about a month. I'm coming from ELCON, which is the Electricity Consumers Resource Council. It's a pro-consumer trade association focused on industrial consumers. So before that, and you know, I'm trying to backtrack and see who, how, how I know everybody here. So the first time I met Jack was as part of the 2016 transition team for the Trump team. That was fun, wasn't it? That was an amazing time. <laughs> My favorite meetings were with Jack Spencer. And so what took me to there, I was at a think tank called the Institute for Energy Research um, and the C4, the American Energy Alliance, endorsed Trump in 2016. So we sort of had an inside track on the on the transition team. Before that, I started my career at FERC. I was an intern, actually, at the John Locke Foundation, where I was exposed to Austrian economics and a whole host of other things. So I've got some uh, mostly think tank and, and government background. So the John Locke Foundation. Um, I was going to get into this later, but we have a mutual friend who worked there at some point, right? That's right. Darren Baxt? the originator of the Heritage Energy Podcast. Yeah. That's right. So I wanted to mention this, um, but we'll do it now. Okay. Uh, you might hear a new voice and a new name of this podcast, um, but I wanted to thank Darren, um, who pioneered Heritage's energy podcast, The Powercast. He did an outstanding job. Now, you might wonder why he's not here right now. Well, Darren has uh, taken another position at a awesome organization, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and Darren's an awesome dude. So I think that's a... a uh, a great match, and I just wanted to thank Darren for all he did and let you know we'll miss him. So thank you, Darren. What else have you done? Is that it? Is that your resume? Well, I do want to say I first met Darren in 2005 when I was an intern still in college, uh-huh. and he was a professional attorney, you know, an accomplished man, but he was always very kind to me. So I, I, I appreciate that. Too many of those. <laughs> anyway. So this, as I mentioned, this is a new podcast. Before we get into it, I thought we could take just a few minutes and talk about what we want to achieve. Um, well, first and foremost, I want to be informative and maybe even entertaining. We'll, we'll give it the old college try. So how are we going to do that? Well, we want to talk about relevant issues for sure in the energy and environment space. But we hope to do that in a way that brings a level of, I don't know, Travis, depth and texture that you might not get from traditional sources. Too often, it seems to me that you know, these are really complex discussions that people are having, um, but they're presented in such simplistic terms, you know, like, do you believe in global warming or don't you? Do you support um, renewable energy or nuclear energy or don't you? And these are really multi-varied questions that have almost infinite layers of complexity with them. And my hope is that this podcast offers an opportunity to engage in those discussions and allows us to unpack them, uh, you know, we want to unpack some of these things where we don't generally get a, a chance to do that in Washington. That's really, I think, one of the great um, attributes of podcasts in general is you get to really dig in. So we hope to do that. 
So while myself and Travis have some experience, as we talked about, toiling in energy policy world, and we certainly have our opinions and insights, we want to bring in guests that will provide listeners with new information and perspectives that help you, our listeners, approach these complex policy issues with greater nuance and understanding. So that's what we hope to do. Travis, that's my take. How about you? So I view my role as a supporting role to Jack, who leads the Power Hour. And I think the, uh, you know, I'm not, personally, I'm not known for my depth or my texture, Jack. I don't know what I'm supposed to bring. I think comic relief is what I'm supposed to bring to this. I do think, um, given your personal interest, Jack, especially in nuclear energy, I feel the need to bring some balance to the force here. And maybe I'll be the one to talk about everything else. You'll, You'll be the nuke guy and I'll be the everything else guy. All right. That seems reasonable. Nuclear energy is better, though, so we'll just lay that I out. realize it's an uphill battle, but I'm, I'm going to fight it. So welcome, everyone. We look forward to seeing where this conversation takes us. So with that all said, let's get to it. Since this is our first episode, we thought that we'd take a broad look at energy policy, like what is energy policy? How's policy made? What are some of the issues and challenges in doing energy policy? And we have literally... I'm happy to say, the perfect guest to get us started. Please welcome Bernie McNamee. So Bernie brings a wealth of experience. He was a FERC commissioner. He's held numerous positions in the Department of Energy. He's worked on Capitol Hill. He's uh, He's practiced energy law. He's advised on state energy issues. I mean, the man has done it all, Travis. Full disclosure, I feel like I should start with this. Full disclosure, I am president of the Bernie McNamee fan club. I want to put that out there. Just so folks don't say I'm biased. I, okay. I'm, I will admit that I am biased. That's fair enough. Um, now, I don't know Bernie as well as you do, but I've gotten to know Bernie a little bit over the years. I've worked with him some. Uh, and if you're the president, I wonder if I could be the vice president. Okay. All right. There we go. So, Bernie, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate the, uh, the support and, you know, Jack, it's been great getting to work with you over the years and uh, really seeing your leadership and as, as you point out, on nuclear. Um, but also I've really uh, enjoyed working with Travis as uh, Travis and I worked together at the U.S. Department of Energy and he was a real thought leader on energy issues and um, such a leader that I was fortunate enough that when I was at FERC that he uh, agreed to be one of uh, my advisors to help me plow through the, the energy issues that came up at FERC and any success I had during that time, I, I credit Travis as being one of, the, one of the, the major contributors to that. Well, I've been here at Heritage for, geez, a long time now. And I've always, uh, I've not really done much of anything here. I've always had really great people to work around me to make it look like I've had some success. And that's why I was so supportive of Travis coming here is so that um, I could continue looking good because of people like Travis, and we'll see if that holds true. You guys are too much. That's a lot of pressure, though, Jack. Okay, I'll see what I can do. All right. Well, Bernie, thanks for coming. Um, I want to start, we'll just have a conversation here. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast, to sort of give people a uh, fly-on-the-wall type listening-in conversation to what people, you know, what we might be talking about. Now, you've done a lot of things, and I just want to start with... uh, maybe the most high profile one. I don't want to, I don't know, but with your experience at FERC. um, First, what is FERC? Well, FERC's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is um, 
the agency that administers um, energy issues uh, related to the Federal Power Act, which is really electricity issues, the Natural Gas Act, which relates to natural gas pipelines and uh, liquefied natural gas LNG export facilities, as well as dealing uh, with some oil pipeline rate issues and also helps address reliability issues on the electric grid. But it's, uh, it's one of those agencies that um, for a long time nobody really paid attention to. And um, as energy issues and environmental issues have risen and as the federal government has expanded its role more and more into energy issues, FERC has become more and more, uh, more, and more of a player and important in these policy, uh, policy discussions. Bernie, one of the things that we hear about with um, agencies like FERC is that they're independent. Is FERC an independent agency? Uh, so, allegedly or supposedly, or is it? Yeah, it's independent in the sense that it was created um, out of the former Federal Power Commission, um, you know, which was during the New Deal era, and then um, became created under the new Department of Energy Organization Act. So it's they like to say it's got like a dotted line under the Department of mm -hmm. Energy, but it's made up of uh, five commissioners appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and no, th no three, no more than three can be from any one party. So it is supposed to be independent in the sense that it's not supposed to be making, taking decisions or making decisions based on direction from, from the White House, but instead supposed to be uh, a collaborative effort to to make the decisions based on on uh, the cases that are brought before it. Now, I'm not. I'm literally not trying to cast dispersions here. I'm just f really interested. Um, is how as a commissioner, do you feel political pressure? Does it change from one administration to the next? I know from an outsider looking in, it feels like sometimes politics pushes um, FERC and other uh, similar regulatory agencies in certain ways and. And sort of from, from the inside, how, how does that feel or how does that unfold from a political standpoint? Well, I can say that at least during my time on the commission, I never felt pressure from the White House uh, to do any particular action. I think that, um, you know, we were allowed to move forward and make decisions as we thought right. And, of course, the, the each of the individual commissioners um, you know, is nominated presumably because they um, – of their background and, and presumably uh, their general views on energy policy. Um, and so, you know, presumably the nominations reflect reflect that. Now, I can't really say what's happened under since I left FERC and uh, since the, uh, the new administration has taken over, how much influence or lack of influence that they're, they're making at FERC. But, um, you know, the, Clearly, under um, over the last couple of years, FERC has has uh, has been moving much more into uh, the climate change uh, policy making versus energy policy making. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a question on that, Bernie. So you talked about some of the guardrails. You know, you have to be good enough to be nominated by the White House, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, the question is, so what what are the guardrails? The, those are two prominent ones. And then, you know, I've I've heard you refer to yourself as a legal textualist, but I should also note that the statutes we're talking about, the Federal Power Act, the Natural Gas Act, 
they're from the 1930s and they're they're pretty slim in terms of their own text and a, a lot of the law is open to interpretation. So I'm curious to to hear your thoughts on sort of how best to keep an agency like FERC on the rails. Is there is there a, um, is there something that would protect the agency from going too far afield, too crazy? Yeah, and I think it I think it is the the text of the statutes. You know, it's the Federal Power Act was designed and is directed. It says to that FERC is to regulate the uh, make sure that uh, the interstate rates for wholesale power sales and uh, transmission are just and reasonable and not um, unduly discriminatory. And that's something that doesn't change with time. Those are you know pretty straightforward standards. And of course, Congress has added some additional aspects to the Federal Power Act since then, including um, focusing on reliability issues, focusing on uh, some transmission issues. But, you know, Congress, under our constitutional system, is the ones who, who make the major policy decisions. It's not supposed to be the executive branch, and it's certainly not supposed to be an uh, agency like FERC. Now, of course, there's going to be rulemakings through time that you know, are trying to implement and address uh, certain issues that might come up, but it, it, the guardrail is the statute, whether it's the Natural Gas Act or the Federal Power Act. It shouldn't be, as we've heard recently, that those who say, well, um, because of the issues of, of climate change and because um, the potential for the dire threats of climate change, we need to, to expand what we think our authorities are under the Federal Power Act or the Natural Gas Act. That's just not how our constitutional system is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be based on one's uh, perception of what, what the current uh, threats are, what the current uh, policy goals are. Congress me needs to make that decision, not, the, not these, you know, an unelected uh, bureaucrat, which I used to call myself on FERC, because that's ultimately what we are, that we're appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. We still don't have the popular support or the constitutional authority to, to make law. Bernie, um, I want to change gears just for a minute. We're going to get back into energy policy. We're going to get deep into energy policy. I want to talk about you for a minute. Um, you've held a ton of positions over the years. I was just wondering, like, how does that happen? What's your story? How did you get to where you are? And one of the reasons I'm asking this is working in this space myself, I interact with young folks all the time who want to know, how do you get these jobs? How do you end up in these places? And I think that um, folks might be interested in sort of just hearing even just a thumbnail sketch of, of how you got to be, uh, you know, how you got to do all these really cool things. Well, um, probably the most, uh, the thing I must credit most is, you know, you know, God has guided me through things and given me opportunities, and I've been fortunate enough to, to be able to take them and, and to move forward on them. You know, my, my career path is, you know, I never thought I'd go into to energy uh, when I started, you know, and I've always been interested in, in politics and policy, and, um, you know, after law school, I was practicing law uh, in Atlanta and uh, got a call from somebody who worked in the Virginia governor's office, Governor George Allen, in his policy office, saying they needed somebody right away as the legislative session was was starting. And they knew me from uh, from college Republicans in a conservative magazine I worked on in college. 
And so my path started there uh, because uh, George Allen gave me an opportunity. I, I worked in the governor's policy office and um, was able to, to really focus on lawmaking, uh, regulatory reform, and policymaking. And that took me um, then a career going back and forth between law firms and uh, and uh, policy jobs in government. I worked for four attorneys general in two states, Virginia and Texas. Worked uh, in the U.S. Senate for Senator Ted Cruz, obviously at the U.S. Department of Energy and then at FERC. But in between those times, I also practiced law, uh, mainly at McGuire Woods, uh, where uh, I'm a partner and a senior advisor in, in McGuire Woods Consulting, focusing on, on energy issues. And you know, I was fortunate enough that, that doing two of my tours of duty at McGuire Woods, you know, I, was, I was in uh, before public utility commissions, arguing rate cases, uh, generation facilities, inter integrated resource planning, uh, RPS plans, you know, actually having to get, in, get into the weeds about how do you operate the grid? How does a utility make money? How does it uh, protect its customers? What are the issues that are out there on environmental issues? And I think throughout my career, I've been fortunate enough that by going in and out of the private sector and, and the public sector, I've been able to take what I've learned in each each area and hopefully be a, a better servant to clients or to the public in those in those areas because you get a different perspective and uh, you know the one thing that I, that was really good to know is you know the challenges of whether you're you know a private sector trying to figure out how to, to build a new power plant or a in the public sector how to get a new regulation uh, promulgated you know a lot of the things that people perceive are happening often aren't happening. There's usually often well-intentioned people on both sides just trying to get through and trying to figure out how to solve a problem. And it's amazing how the how uh, various forces on the outside or the, or the press often uh, gets it wrong about what's really motivating uh, what's, what's happening. I think you're absolutely right, Bernie. One thing that I noticed when I started my career at FERC is I was coming from you know, a free market think tank. And the prevailing view, if I could characterize it, was something like, you know, the government is the problem. And of course, every government agency just wants to grab up more power and they're all power thirsty, you know, the, the usual story. The agency that I found was a little bit different than that. There was a lot of what, what you're characterizing as like the, the well-meaning public servant. Um, one problem that I think, though, is if, if enough free market folks think that about government, that'll be a barrier for them to actually get the agency experience themselves. So I'm curious if you have any advice to especially the uh, young folks who might be uh, in the audience, just if, if, the, if they have the impulse to be a part of the public sector, what, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Travis. I think public service is incredibly important both for personal development, but also for the good of the nation. We need different points of view flowing through government because everybody learns from each other. And um, especially when you're young, you know, when you come out of college or out of law school, you know, you, you want to be working on big issues and you're, you're often somewhat idealistic. And the, the reality is you think you know everything, but you actually don't have a lot of experience. And there's the nice thing about when you go into government, you often get a lot of a, 
a lot of um, uh, authority and a lot of experience and a lot of exposure right away. And it's a great education and the public benefits. And I think being a, when you go into a private sector, they'll benefit from that knowledge. Um, and then hopefully, maybe one day later, you'll go back in the public sector and have an opportunity to share what you learned in the private sector. So I think um, it's good and it's good for the republic to have people going in, in and out of government and add it not just be um, people who start off with the uh, belief that government should expand, but it ought to be traditional conservatives and libertarians who go in, one to learn, but also to serve. Bernie, you, you, this discussion brings up, I think, what really is at the heart of not just energy policy, but almost all policy, but we'll, we'll stick with energy policy. It's the nexus between free markets and government control. Um, what is your view on that? Uh, like most people, most people, I think, would argue free markets are the most efficient way to, um, to organize an economy. Others might argue that um, while that may well be the case, that it doesn't give you the outcome that you might want from a political perspective. Um, what's your view on that? What do you think is the goal of energy policy and how do you resolve that tension? Well, I think um, my natural inclination is less government, more market decisions. I think, though, the, um, you got to look at one, where are you right now? And also, there needs to be a focus on what is the end result you're, you're trying to solve for. The, the, the end result is, is not markets for market's sake. The end result is to provide more freedom and opportunity and economic benefit to the American people. And usually that's achieved mainly through markets. One thing I've done, I'm, I'm also a, uh, a visiting professor at the Appalachian School of Law uh, teaching energy law and, re and regulation. And, you know, when I was preparing for class, I've, I came across a really interesting uh, discussion, and that is the, this, the kind of the cyclical aspect of regulation. And it goes to, to answering your question, and that is, is that um, usually when a new product comes out, there's no regulation, it grows rapidly, um, it, it creates innovation, um, but then it can also end in, you know, start to turn into a monopoly, raising prices, excluding competitors. And so then there's often a call for a form of, of regulation. And then you have regulation by the government and then um, decrying to get rid of some of the abuses. But then the government itself becomes the abuse in that it's protecting uh, certain businesses and it, they, there's not growth, there's cronyism. And then there's a call for deregulation again. And I think we see that in a variety of, of issues that we're dealing with as a nation. And I think, and I'm not just talking obviously about energy issues, but I also will make the observation that I think what we have seen in Washington over the last, since the Reagan years, and in fact, I was at the 1984 uh, convention in Dallas when, when Reagan was renominated, which was a real highlight. Um, but one of the, the things is conservatism, and uh, be, which was kind of a form of fusionism of some libertarianism and Burkean uh, approaches to conservatism about tradition, 
had started to harden from what was supposed to be an inclination about human nature and what's best for liberty and government into an ideology. And so if somebody said it was free market, then we said we were for it. If somebody said it was free trade, we were for it and didn't often look about whether or not that was actually true and um, about what were its impacts on, on, on the public and liberty. And I think what we've seen in recent years and what you're seeing a reaction of the common sense of the American people has been recognizing that there has been a, a, uh, a growing symbiotic relationship between uh, big business, big tech, and big government under the guise of, uh, of sometimes saying free markets that really have, have been stagnating the ability of what markets should be doing is pro producing opportunities for individuals to make choices and for uh, suppressing, you know, liberty in many senses. So I think to really go around, it comes back to what are, what are we solving for? And um, in the energy area, and I'm sure we'll get into this, I think it's become a little more complicated because the part of the way that the way the uh, the electric grid in particular has developed and how um, what were supposed to be free market principles in trying to get more competition and generation about whether that is actually working for the American people and who's benefiting under the rubric of what's called uh, electric markets, which really aren't markets, but are regulatory constructs kind of out of the public eye and not having much oversight. But we can get into that a little bit more. I think it's clear on uh, other en energy issues, um, you know, whether it's what vehicles we should drive, whether or not there should be, you know, what resources we should use. We should have the opportunity to make those choices ourselves and not have government dictating it. We're definitely going to get into this whole electricity market thing. Um, but I want to respond to what you just said, or not respond, I want to engage on that a little bit. Because I think you brought up an important point, which is we simplify these concepts down into slogans almost. So as you said, if, if we said before it was free market, we were for it. If it wasn't, we weren't. And what I would argue that allows to happen is for those terms to be distorted horribly in order to advance a certain agenda. And that undermines the purity of what those terms originally meant. So um, free trade is a great example where um, if a, if a so-called free trade agenda were termed as such, then it would gain support from those who ostensibly are supposed to support free trade, when in fact what many of these things did were not free trade at all, but very much managed trade. And in the process, you get all of the, um, the negative impacts of a managed economy that fell under the rhetorical rubric of free markets or free trade, and then that uh, sullied the, 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 the concept um, ultimately. And I think that's some of what we're dealing with now. Um, so much of the American economy and energy space and elsewhere um, has been described as uh, free market or uh, pure ca or capitalism, when in fact, it's been far from it from a really long time. And as those uh, inefficiencies from too much government management add up over the years, um, it's allowed opponents of freedom to mischaracterize those, uh, the, the economy and thereby justify additional regulation and different uh, additional management. 
Um, do you do, do you think that that is a um, an appropriate critique of what has occurred over the last you know say thirty years or whatever, and has helped get us to where we are? I do, I do think that that is is an accurate critique of uh, you know using slogans that don't actually represent the reality, and then it just uh, it, it it confuses the issue. And I think it's also, you know, like I said, the the end always needs to be focused on what are we trying to achieve, um, and not necessarily on uh, merely. And I say that purposely, not merely, but of course, involving the methods because um, the the thing that concerns me on a number of issues is. And we're getting more into political philosophy right now and, and uh, discussion of how we articulate this, but it's a podcast. We can do what we want. Yeah. You know, one thing that I've noticed is on the conservative side, you know, I've been a movement conservative and probably more of the Burkean side, uh, though with libertarian influences on economics, is that, you know, we know when we use phrases like liberty and freedom, you know, that means a lot to us, and we kind of know what it means. But I'm not convinced that everybody understands what that means um, mm -hmm. when we use it. And I notice that often uh, the left, progressives, they talk in terms of justice. And I think it's interesting um, that that's done. You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talked about how, uh, you know, when describing the actual law, that everybody knows it's wrong to cut in line regardless of what culture you're in, and that that's an issue kind of of justice. I, I really also wonder if, if it would help, you know, help conservatives, help the American people, um, if we, you know, were better at describing our ideas and our goals of, for liberty and freedom in terms of why that participates in justice and, and um, you know, will help us achieve that. And I think that will also help us think through the issues we're trying to deal with and why, um, whether it's energy policy or any policy, we need to be making our decisions focused on uh, the benefits of the American people. And part of that is allowing Americans to make their own decisions about how they want to live. Well, that that is a big part of what we hope to do with this. And I'm glad you brought that up. So how do we do that with energy policy? How do you know it's so often energy and environment is cast in terms from the left as justice. And, um, you know, one of the things I think that um, we need to do a better job of or I need to do a better job of is hearing how others cast these things, because to me, I'm a I'm a freedom and liberty person. I think that we should within the rule of law be able to pursue our happiness as we see fit, including energy policy decisions. Um, but clearly that's not the per the, that that's not the um, preponderance of attitude when it comes to energy. Even within some conservative circles, you don't have to look far to find a conservative who wants to subsidize this or prevent that or you know manage. Um, so how do we? better articulate our ideals in energy policy in ways that reach a broader audience, that understands the concerns and um, sensitivities 
of folks that we end up clashing with when in fact we probably all want very similar things except for the those of them who are corrupt um but i can't imagine that most people on the other side of the energy debate are corrupt they are simply pursuing what they think is the right thing how do we sort of bring it together a little bit i think that's that's a good good point of of talking about it is that w that we should not be demonizing each other um and think and try and understand what they're trying to solve for to try and find some common ground once we have to start making policy. You know, stepping back on the the interesting thing on energy policy these days, as you know, is that everything's oriented around the idea of uh, climate change. And the 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 nuances are often missed in climate change, whether you're looking at the 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 UN Intergovernmental uh, Group on, on Climate or the U.S. panels on the interagency panel on climate, you know, the rhetoric is around Armageddon that, you know, we're five, ten years away from, you know, the earth being destroyed by climate change, you know, overheating. Whereas, you know, as we all know, the science is not showing that those are the actual uh, impacts of uh, changes in climate. And so in terms of an organizing principle, if if it's projected that, you know, we have to save the planet by having radical change, which then argues then for massive expansion of government in order to force that change, that is something that is very different than what I was talking about before about a justice issue. You know, one is about fear and 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 you know an immediately an immediate end versus are there challenges that we should try and address through policy and through uh, decision making to you know to to address challenges that we have on the environment and so um, and that's more than just climate change you know, it's you know any sort of emissions or water or anything like that and so. On energy policy, I think once you know what we're seeing is, um, you know, obviously a, a, a big move towards promoting renewables and trying to suppress fossil fuels. And the the thing is, is that what is really driving all this is money, which is usually one of the major drivers for any decision that or power. And, um, you know, we saw in the, uh, the so-called, uh, you know, the IRA passed by Congress and signed by the president, you know, $370 billion more on top of the previous 70 billion, on top of the billions and billions of dollars that are, are subsidies for renewables and um, such as wind and solar. And as we have known, you know, those were supposed to be it was like the production tax credit was supposed to be temporary. Well, it's basically become permanent, and it's it's um, it's causing, in my view, Americans to pay four or five times for the same electricity. You know, they paid for the coal plant once that's now being shut down. They're paying for um, the wind project or the solar project. They're paying for the subsidy uh, through for the. Uh, for, for it through the debt issued to China mainly to pay for the tax credit. They're not actually getting the benefit of the tax credit because the way the markets work. And they're having to buy backup power 
uh, to keep the grid operating when uh, the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining. So, um, you know, just massive uh, transfers of dollars um, from the American public for a service that they want and need that's going to benefit those who are able to uh, to get the policies made to benefit them and, and have those dollars transferred to them. You know, that's that's a fundamental problem. I wasn't going to bring up the wind production tax credit because it is my least favorite policy of all of the federal policies, I think. Um, but one thing I wanted to point out, and th this is a, a thing that I've noticed when people say they're pro-market, you know, in the sense that we, we talked about people using language in ways that it's really not, I mean, the word doesn't mean what it's supposed to anymore. So we have these pro-market people who are so pro-subsidy, they're pro-PTC, and when they say they're pro-market, they mean they're, they like these organized markets in which the wind and solar subsidies can basically just be passed through, and, uh, you know, in, in some cases, prices go negative. And so for, for these people who claim to love markets, they also support this subsidy that directly undermines the market function itself. I'm curious if, if you've seen that too in the uh, I, I'm, I always tend to think of things in the Saul Alinsky sense where you know if if you go against these folks who say they're pro market but also pro subsidy and all of that, it's one of those things if you're not with us, you're against us and so we'll demonize you and we'll you know pick the target, freeze it, personalize it and the attacks become very personal very fast when really I just wanted to talk about energy policy. Have you seen the same thing? Absolutely. You know, I think the the regional transmission organizations around the country, there's seven of them, six regulated by FERC. Um, they uh, they don't serve all the country, but but significant portions of it. They're called electric markets. They're not. They're they're uh, regulated entities by FERC um, with, you know, complex rules and regulations. In fact, I, the other day I was adding up PGM's uh, 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 tariffs and uh, regs and, and manuals, and it was almost 10,000 pages. And so that's not really a market. And like you said, people run around and say, oh, market, market, market. And, you know, if we want to get into it, and I guess this is the time to do it, is, is you know, the RTOs, when they were designed, you know. Bern, oh, Bernie or Travis, what is an RTO? I'll, I'll take that one if you're okay with that, Bernie. Sure. So regional transmission organizations, um, some of them are called independent system operators. So you hear about terms like RTO, ISO. They're the wholesale markets. They cover something like, I'm going to say, half the land mass of the country and something like two-thirds of the customers because they're, they're more concentrated in the east. Um, so the, these are organizations, as, as Bernie said, there's six of them that FERC regulates, and then the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, is its own sort of AC grid island that is not FERC jurisdictional. So that's fascinating, too. Um, but what they are is this, it's basically a wholesale trading platform. So you, you set up a real-time and a day-ahead market, and you get transparent prices. You have you know all your sellers in a stack, and they offer into it. And you have sort of your wholesale buyers and things clear in a real-time, transparent fashion, which I think is the appeal of them to a, a lot of folks is that they're transparent, they're open, you get a transparent price, you can even get uh, the price of transmission congestion, which is important for trying to figure out how to build out the transmission grid. There are a lot of market-like things to them, but as Bernie said, I mean, even the, um, 
So for PJM, which used to stand for Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, but now it's a 13-state enterprise, yeah, their their main open access transmission tariff, which is sort of their root, you know, document, I guess, that's something like 3,500 pages. So it's like a free trade agreement that's hundreds of pages. You could just say free trade, just do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we need hundreds and hundreds of pages. But in, in, in the case of these RTOs, we certainly have, you know, as, as Bernie said, it's not exactly like, hey, just here's free trade, just go and do it. There are a lot of rules. Uh, of course, there's security constraint, economic dispatch. You get really nerdy about what well, you need to make sure the system is reliable. So they have that function too. Uh, but that's basically the gist of it. They're wholesale electricity markets. Travis and Bernie. Um, Bernie, I'm sorry to have interrupted you, but I want to interject a thought and then hand it both to both of you guys. To Bernie, finish what you were saying. Electricity markets and electricity production, getting it from the person who produces it to where I can plug something is extraordinarily complicated. And I was wondering if, Bernie, in answering, finishing the thought that you were, were having when I rudely interrupted you, um, could you just walk us through real quick, how, like, what, how do these pieces all fit together, like the RTOs and the producers and the, you know, all that okay. stuff, in a, sure. if we can, in, an, in a short sure. time frame? Sure. It's, you know, the electric grid is really three different pieces. There's power plants, the generation. There's the high voltage transmission system, you know, those long power lines you see when you're driving down the interstate. And then there's the distribution system, the the telephone poles outside your house and the and the and the wire that goes into your house. And you think about that and it's all over, you know, it's all over your subdivision, it's all over the country. And what and power has to be in order to to operate, it's basically got to be in a very narrow frequency and voltage and it's and it's it's got to be managed in the you know in the milliseconds to keep all of everything powered and for everything to work right and um it is very complicated and it's capital intensive you know you need to build lots and lots of power plants and lots and lots of transmission lines and lots and lots of distribution lines to make sure that everything works and at the same time, you don't want a lot of duplication. You don't want two sets of high voltage power lines providing the same service, you know, going across the countryside. You don't want two uh, distribution lines coming into your house, both for economic efficiency, for environmental reasons, you know, just for, um, you know, you just don't want the, the clutter on the, on the landscape. And so, it's very, very complicated. Making it even more complicated is the way electricity works. And that is, you know, we don't really think about it, but there's not a steady use of electricity through the day. If you think about it, there's always some electricity going on at night, you know, because we have our, you know, there's some people working, there's, you know, um, our refrigerators are on, or we might have the heat or the air conditioning on. But it's at a lower level. But as we wake up, we start turning things on, businesses start opening, and the need the need for more electricity goes up through the day. And then towards the end of the day, you know, it starts to go down and back to 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 a basic level. So if you think about 320 American 320 million Americans all doing that at the same, you know, at the same time, but progressing across the country as the sun's rising, the sun's setting. 
becomes very, very complicated to manage all that. And so what you have around the country are the in the in the RTOs are these rooms that look like you know a scene from NASA with these massive boards and they've got the major power lines and all the generation facilities and they're looking every really every minute every five minutes about how much power is going to be needed and in these RTOs what somebody realized is hey let's use market principles to have competition for generation for meeting power plants to try and get the most efficient generator or generators to provide power throughout the day so at when the, the RTOs were created, every electron was fungible because every electron was basically dispatchable on demand, meaning that you either were, it wasn't when, you know, dependent on the weather about whether or not you could, you could get the generation to power up and provide the power. And so the economic principle that these, uh, these uh, RTOs had in the, in the, was to create marginal price auctions uh, basically, they would have a day ahead for each hour the next day, but also f every basically five minutes in most places, along with uh, uh, constrained pricing or LMP pricing. Um, but, but basically, they were using to find the most efficient heat rate in generators, and, and you would have generators who couldn't do it efficiently fall out, and more efficient ones would survive. Economic theory was fine under that theory, and, and arguably, uh, might have been working. But once you started having subsidized resources like wind and solar in particular coming into, uh, into the market, they were disrupting the way price formation would work. And you saw this particularly happen in Texas with, with, with ERCOT. You've seen this in California with the California ISO. And so what would happen is the resources that you needed to power the grid when the wind wasn't blowing and the sun wasn't shining, we're no longer getting paid enough to stay basically on backup, to stay available on backup for when they were needed. And so they started to go, um, you know, go under. And so what you've had is a problem now where you're having all across the nation, we're really for the first time in our, our history, you know, we're having a lack of enough generation to keep the lights on. You know, of course, power will go out, you know, in a hurricane or a snowstorm when the power lines go down, you fix them. But now we're set, we're in a situation where we actually don't have enough power plants that can feed the grid when we need it. And that's that's a real threat to, to the grid and to, to the American people. And so what we've got is under the idea of electric markets, as, as they're called, a system that's allowing subsidized resources to undermine the price formation that the market was supposed to develop to ensure reliability of the grid. And so the end result is customers aren't really benefiting price-wise because the way the, the no fuel and tax credits that renewables get aren't being passed through to customers that are being passed through the, to the investors. And yet the resources that are burning fuel or that would be available to operate when wind and solar aren't available aren't making enough money to stay in business. And so this is a real problem that we're we're really having to deal with in um, in the country. I think that's exactly right, and I don't want to make light of this, but I do want to make a Scooby Doo reference, if I may, Jack. Uh, this I feel like the RTOs they're like the bad guy at the end of the episode that they they are saying would have gotten away with it too. 
if it weren't for you meddling kids, I feel like the uh, the, the different interventions, and this is, a, I'm going to out myself as a uh, Austrian school economist, the Ludwig von Mises theory of in- interventionism is just one begets another. And so you have things like state mandates for renewables, you have the PTC, all of that. And then, so you have these markets that need to essentially do another layer of bailout. So you need a reliable plant. It's not economic to run if it's going up against subsidies. So then you have to subsidize that plant too. So it's just kind of a snowballing effect that we're seeing right now. And unfortunately, it seems that um, you, as this goes on, you come up against two really bad choices. Either you continue to layer on these inefficiencies and these subsidies in order to give the impression that this this Rube Goldberg system is maintained, or you step back, you pay the price, and let it rebuild um, in, in more secure footing. And I think the challenge of policy right now is to not get to that point. Like, let's start doing some of the right things. It, it, we, we see uh, the, the folly of bad policy manifesting itself, Bernie, as you described, all across the country. And, uh, you know, we need to do something different for sure. And one thing is, you know, an important aspect of this to think about and be able to come up with solutions is also political accountability um, and the results. You know, the RTOs, I would argue, you know, when the lights go out, who do you call? Do you call PJM? And then who does P, you know, PJM may call like the generator that cho- that w- didn't show up when it was supposed to show up. But, you know, that's really no solution. You call one of the five FERC commissioners, that's really not a solution. You know, one thing I've seen is, you know, in the Southeast where there there is not an RTO, you still have what's called vertically integrated utilities regulated primarily by the state public utility commissions. They've... They have not had the same reliability problems, and they're achieving their public policy goals that the states have set for them, including their RPS plans. And according to EIA data, the the all-in rate that customers pay on a per kilowatt basis are actually below the national average and often below most of the RTO um, uh, rates, you know, for the states on a per kilowatt hour all-in. And so... The other thing that you get with that is there's accountability. You either you have the public utility commission either you know elected or appointed by the state, but you know when there's a problem, they call in the utility and say, "Tell me what's what's wrong." They also do what's called integrated resource planning, which is saying, "Okay, this is where where you know we think that the things are going to go in five years in terms of load growth. How are you going to meet it, and how are you going to do it economically and responsibly?" And though that seems a little bit, uh, sounds a little bit like central planning, the thing is, is it's, it's actually worked and it's working for the benefit of customers and there's a political accountability, whereas basically the RTOs, especially with all these public policy subsidies, there's really no accountability and there's a lot of money being spent and, there, and the reliability is plunging. And, um, you know, that is something we need to, to really think about is, you know, how are we going to, like you said, how are we going to make things work again? So, Bernie, we're we're about to move into um, a new. Well, it's it's obviously a new segment because this is a new podcast. But um, I need. I, I just want to respond to that or, or follow that up with something. I hear what you're saying about 
what's happening in the regulated um, space in comparison to what's happening in what previously might have been called unregulated space, but as I think you and Travis both described, is hardly not regulated. It's regulated differently. Um, but my my concern is not that the regulated utilities in the South might not look better as compared to the alternative, but they still aren't operating as efficiently and as affordably as they otherwise would. And so to me, as we discuss these sorts of issues, we shouldn't, I don't think that we should accept that model as the end game, but rather um, see what we can learn from that, see what we can learn from the so-called deregulation experience to do something better. And I conclude that because when I look at, you know, the way the prices continue to go up on, you know, some of those projects down there, I just, I don't know. I just wanted to add that to, um, to what you were saying. Well, I don't, you know, as a general proposition, I'm not necessarily sure, you know, neither, neither way of regulation is going to be perfect, but what, um, what I do know is that, um, you know, because I do believe that that electricity is is something that's vital to the American people, that it is generally an, a natural monopoly, and that you know nothing's going to be perfect. At least with what we know now, uh, people of the Southeast are are benefiting more from the system than people all over the country. I mean, you you know you look at ERCOT, which you know that. You know, with Winter Storm Uri, um, the process ended up with, you know, when uh, the power went out, you know, in February 2021, uh, you know, 210 people died and arguably $125 billion was lost. Well, that was what was not priced into the market. And, um, and what you're seeing even more as we go forward is a lot of cost shifting where whether it's big tech, big business, or using these so-called, uh, you know, electric markets and RTOs, where they're shifting costs over to, um, to you know, normal everyday Americans, families, seniors. And I'll say one other thing, because I think this is really important um, in this debate, is we're seeing a lot of talk about we need transmission build out, you know, and the whole argument is, oh, you know, we. We see reliability. Oh, let's do, fix that by getting more renewables from like the Midwest to the coast. Well, that's just about getting more access for market share. But they want to, you know, allocate those billions, if not trillions, of dollars, and socialize them to customers. So then, um, you know, these subsidized resources are getting yet another subsidy. And this, this in many ways, what we've created in this country right now is like uh, Bastiat's. Uh, broken window fallacy, in which basically we broke the electric system that was working, and now saying, "Well, that's good for everybody because now we're going to spend all this money to build all this new, all these new generation resources to replace the the ones that were working before, and we're going to build all this new transmission, and we're going to create all these supposed green jobs while pushing other people out." And the whole thing is just a morass. And I think one thing we got to really deal with from a political theory basis as well as how do we put the American people back in control and make sure that they are protected and have access to reliable electricity. And because of the nature of the electric grid, um, 
there's always going to be government involved, and I'd always rather have government closer to the people most involved because the government then is most accountable to them. So one one thing I just wanted to add to this, because I'm sure I'm going to get yelled at by my former FERC colleagues, uh, we like to call it restructuring because it's not deregulation at all. Re-regulation, restructuring is is probably the the right word. The, the other thing to note, even in the cases of you know these RTO, these organized markets, they're still FERC jurisdictional, so they have a federal regulator. Each state has its own PUC, so it's, you know state has its sort of FERC equivalent. Uh, so there's plenty of regs still being done. Um, so it's not unregulated. I, I would go with restructured. I, I, he, I hear you saying that. That's not what everyone called it in the I know, 90s. I know. Everyone called it deregulation. So if I said restructuring, everyone would be like, you mean deregulation, right? And that goes back to what we were maybe talking about earlier, which is the distortion of language in order to get an agenda. Now, we've gone over already. Bernie, You, we could talk to you for hours. But one of the things we want to do with this podcast is talk about some current event type things. And Travis is going to lead that discussion of some good, bad, and ugly things that are happening in energy and environment policy. So, Travis, give us what those things are. Yeah, so I am approaching this from the point of view that probably the best you can do in D.C. is good. There's no excellent and then good, bad, ugly. Good-ish, the best, maybe? best you can do is good, and then there's always going to be bad, and I'm pretty sure there's always going to be ugly. So what I would nominate for this show, the good, I personally like the policies within H.R. 1, which is the House. It, it's essentially the Republicans' energy policy. There's all sorts of bills that they've smashed together. One thing that I'll flag, though, is it has the potential to possibly get new natural gas pipelines into New England, which is a huge issue. I don't want to go on that tangent yet, but it's so bad there that they actually import liquefied natural gas from Trinidad and Tobago, occasionally from Russia, although not recently. And that's just a bizarre thing because in terms of the distance, you know, the Marcellus Shale is only about, I don't know, less than 200 miles away. So it's it's one of those things where, like, can we just build some pipelines, please? Can I add an ugly to that? I agree with everything you said about HR1. However, I hope that if it does lead to uh, natural gas going to New England, it does not get to uh, Edward Markey's house. And because, not because I have anything against Edward Markey, he's a fine man, I'm sure. I don't know him personally. But I was listening to NPR yesterday. Now, you might ask, Jack, why are you listening to NPR? That is a good question, and I don't have a good answer. Um, But I was, and he was on there, and he went on and on and on about the Willow Project and how it was horrible, and he couldn't give any good reason uh, uh, for it. But then he concluded with, um, it should be the policy of this president to destroy, I think he said destroy, the... uh, the, the um, business model of the gas and oil industry. And so long, if it, I certainly don't think that, but I would advocate for the destruction of the gas and oil industry in terms of when it, how it gets to his house, since he is so much for the destruction thereof. And that, I would say, is extraordinarily ugly. You know, the irony here is I imagine, as a lot of people in Massachusetts and all of New England have heating oil, I would be shocked if he didn't have heating oil for of his own house. Of course he does. He, like all the elitists, want... Everyone else to not fly, not have uh, these things, but of course they all use it. I'm sorry, so I interrupted you. Just turn my good into an ugly. No, no, no. Just an ugly aspect. So that I think is uh, is overall positive that the House majority is interested in doing more on 
you know, uh, American energy, we're going to produce more, we're going to move more. I think I think all of that is positive. The um, Bernie, have you followed HR one and all? And do you have thoughts on it? Yeah, I have followed it. I think I agree. It's it's a good collection of bills that um, if enacted is going to you know move us a step closer on good energy policy. You know, of course, there's more to do on certain things like permitting and and some other things, but it's definitely a a good step forward on many fronts. Whether it's uh, LNG exports, critical minerals, some some NEPA reform. I have some ideas about additional NEPA reform, but it's definitely a, a you know, if enacted, it would it be a step forward. Great. So the bad for this week. My first assignment when I came to Heritage was to write comments for the FAR rule. The acronym is the Federal Acquisition Regulations Changes. So the rule is the change to the, the, the FAR regs. Essentially what it does is it takes every major federal contractor and forces them to be compliant. And it's a proposed rule. It's not final yet. So we'll, we'll see if they took our comments to heart. But essentially the rule would take federal contractors, and we're talking even defense contractors. So we're talking Lockheed Martin. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars here would force contractors, if they want to deal with the federal government, and it's a whole-of-government approach to climate, if contractors want to do business with the federal government, they now have to come up with a plan to be certified by some nonprofit that's specified in the rule that they're in compliance with the Paris Climate Accord. See, now, as a small government guy myself, I love this rule. Because I think if a company is so audacious to want to do business with the government, it should be subject to every bit of regulation as we possibly can so as they can avoid that whole business model and just do productive things in the private sector. Yeah, I I see where you're going, Jack. <laughs> uh, I appreciate a good devil's advocate argument. No, I think the, it doesn't uh, work, though. Well, the trouble is it gets into national defense. And, right, we, and we have this an, issue of Chinese yeah, spy balloons okay. flying we'll across the country. We'll have national security exclusion. Right. Even us free trade guys understand national security exclusions. Bernie, what do you think of this? Do you, am I right? Or is big government Travis on the, on the, on the right path here? Uh, um, you know, I think I'm going to have to side with Travis on this one. Here's, the, right. here's the real problem is, <laughs> is, you know, the collusion between big government and big business to achieve the ends of certain policy makers is a real danger in this country. And rules like that, that basically uh, allow only the biggest corporations who could comply to be able to access, to get federal funds to do whatever, which is a you know whole business model of, of doing that. You then have things like ESG, which I think is one of the most brilliant ideas of the progressive left in probably 60 years because it, instead of having to win issues at the ballot box, you get to uh, get pro the private sector to enforce your political agenda and, and cultural agenda. You know, I think that is the biggest threat right now, at least internally to the United States. China is obviously a huge external threat. Um, but I think that our liberty, our freedom, and, and what is fair and just to the American people is under direct threat because of whether it's these whole government regulations that limits a company's ability to, to, to uh, earn income from providing a public good through government contracts or from being able to access private capital uh, because of ESG requirements is, is really a huge threat to our liberty and to, to, to you know, it's just fundamentally unjust because it's, it's telling some some people, you have to give up your freedom of thought, your freedom of religion, your 
um, your freedom of conscience if you want to be able to make a living. And especially as it relates to defense, I mean, this is one of those things where call me old fashioned, Jack, or maybe call me a squishy statist. <laughs> call me anything you want. But as long as the military Just not late is for dinner, as long as <laughs> never late for dinner, as long as the military is focused on the right things, which, you know, again, call me old fashioned. I think it should be like something along the lines of winning the next war. OK, not how green can we get and how much can we cripple federal contractors in the process? All right. Uh, to demonstrate my open mindedness. And my willingness to, when confronted with new information, to change it. I now agree with both you and Brian oh, thank you, Jack. On the far rule, I think you have some ugly. I do have an ugly, and this is very unfortunate. So I've been a friend of Alex Epstein's for about ten years now, and so when he came to testify on the Hill, I think ostensibly to discuss the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, something along those lines. I think it's indicative of the state of the debate. And Jack and I are in the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. I think the state of the energy, climate, and environment debate is its awful. It's just in shambles. So he shows up, and Representative Cori Bush, I believe in her opening, just invoked the, the, the race card, called Alex himself a racist, said you know that he basically didn't deserve to be there based on some things that he wrote when he was 19 years old in college, which if you read them, they actually are not racist. But the, the whole the problem here, the ugliness of it, is we're not talking about ideas anymore. We're not, we're not debating policy. It turns into a very personal fight, and I, 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 I think that just it doesn't bode well for getting policy right if you can't have a, a you know, a conversation with folks if you just call them names. Uh, I, I think we're in a bad place. So that that's that's the ugly. If I were being optimistic, which I always am, I might say that that's because they're afraid of our arguments. They're afraid that we're winning. Uh, the easiest way to confront a winning argument is to avoid it, go around it. And unfortunately, the left um, does that through ad hominem attack, which unfortunately, very unfortunately, that's all the same thing, um, Alex uh, fell victim to. And, you know, I don't think any fair-minded person comes down on the side uh, that does not come down on Alex's side on this because it was blatant and it was ugly, very ugly. Um, so, Bernie, did you see that? I saw clips of it, and it was outrageous. And, I, yeah. you know, it is uh, what is disturbing is this is the the way that the progressive left is dealing with all issues is to, uh, if you disagree with them, denounce them as, you know, as, as something inherently evil um, or shout them down, prevent them from talking. We can look at what happened to the Fifth Circuit judge that tried to speak at at Stanford Law School, and that those uh, that those people that are supposed to be some of the smartest kids in the world to be the next generation of lawyers would be so intolerant, so close-minded, and so bigoted themselves is just shocking. And the fact that they had a dean that was basically cheering them on—it's a—it's uh, this is a contagion that's going all through our society, and we know it, and we see it, and. Um, it is going to be, uh, it is the challenge about whether we actually believe in the dignity of the human person and freedom and freedom of thought, freedom of religion, and whether we believe in that we are rational beings that can debate issues on the facts or whether we are just on the, the road to despotism, tyranny, and, um, and, uh, you know, going to be living in the new world of Winston Smith.
Yeah. Travis, um, can I give you some feedback? And you know feedback is code for critique, publicly here in front of everyone. Yeah, let's go for it. All right. We shouldn't do good, bad, and ugly. We just ended on a what could be termed as a pessimistic note. Well, I was going to say. We should do ugly, bad, and good. We can change the order, but I was going to end on, a, on an optimistic Please note anyway. Please do, then I take my critique away. Have at it. Well, here's the positive spin. We're all acknowledging it. I think people who see what's going on, who saw the Alex Epstein clips, are thinking, this is ridiculous. We can do better than this. And I think there is, you know, uh, there's a reason to be optimistic that the, uh, you know, the, the platforms themselves are getting better. Twitter's a good example of, you know, if that sort of thing, if the, uh, I don't know, if if the, what, what, what's the, what's the name of the thing, the the underlying code for the programs. Never mind. I don't know. The algorithm. The algorithm. That's what I was looking for. I'm a big tech guy. I'm not a big tech guy. I'm a big tech guy. You're a guy who loves big tech. Yes, I get it. No, I I got it. I got it. Uh, No, I mean, I I think there's reason to believe that that things are getting better and that we could enter a new era of debate, that we could actually have these debates squarely. We would have a fair public square, a Twitter without the bad algorithms. And, you know, things could actually get better. I, I, I do believe in that. All right. I stand corrected once again, twice in one episode. We're going to call it there. We've gone over, but I think it was worth it. So let's bring it to a close. I want to, first of all, thank you, Bernie. Great first guest. I really appreciate it. Uh, secondly, I want to give a heartfelt thanks to everyone who took some time out of your day today to listen to this here podcast. I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode. If you like nuclear energy, then you'll want to stay tuned. I think we might talk nuclear energy next time. But before we sign off, just a couple of things. We'll be releasing new episodes every two weeks. If you love us, maybe we'll do it every week. Um, And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and family and colleagues to check us out. If you didn't like us, tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone. So with that... Travis, Bernie, any final words? Thank you for having me on. I've I've enjoyed it. That's all I got. I just want to thank Bernie for being a great American, actually being a public servant. Thank you, Bernie. So there you go, folks. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.